Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Bill Spitz. Bill was the longtime head of Vanderbilt University's endowment before retiring for the first time in 2007. He received numerous Lifetime Achievement Awards for his work and is one of the legends in this business. After failing in that retirement, he joined Diversified Trust Company, which he co-founded in 1994, and today is a $6.5 billion wealth manager. Our conversation discusses managing an endowment in the early days, implementing unconventional investments, creating an edge as an allocator, selecting managers and conducting due diligence, exiting managers, the challenging current landscape, and working with families. Please enjoy my conversation with Bill Spitz. Bill, thanks for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure, and I'm very honored to be here because I know many of your past guests, and it's, it's quite a group of luminaries, so thank you very much. I'd love to start in your early days. Looking back, and you started managing Vanderbilt Endowment in 1985, which happens to be a banner year for those who really know, mostly because you started at Vanderbilt, and secondarily because it happens to be the same year Dave Swenson started at Yale. What was the landscape like for university investment offices in the early years? It's interesting. Uh, they were relatively small. The portfolios in general were relatively simplistic, although for reasons that I don't entirely understand, Vanderbilt was actually a pretty early player in the alternative space. So when I got there in 1985, you know, we had a couple percent in venture capital. We had some real estate exposure, traditional stocks and bonds. We had a large international exposure, which wasn't all that common at that point. So we were actually, you know, for a Southern, uh, not major Ivy League endowment, it was actually pretty aggressive. And I don't take credit for that. That's what I found when I got there. But in general, I think endowment portfolios were still relatively conservative and relatively simple in their structure. Now, Harvard had obviously evolved. Yale was beginning to evolve. Notre Dame and Duke and some others were, were starting down that path. But it was pretty early in general. And it feels like there were only a handful that had someone like you even in the seat back then. You know, at that point, the compensation wasn't particularly appealing. And for those of us, as I did, who came from Wall Street, you had to love your alma mater or want to be in the endowment world for some other reason. It wasn't quite the same sort of appealing career path that it is today. And, and it really wasn't a career path in the sense that, you know, today a lot of young people go directly to endowments and grow up in the endowment world. Back then, that didn't really happen. You know, Dave Swenson was an investment banker, and, and I was in money management firm here Yeah, in what York. was your path before you got to Vanderbilt? So I graduated from the University of Chicago. I went to work for Citigroup in the investment management area. I then worked for a couple of different firms. And I was a, a quantitative analyst. I was a portfolio manager. I was a traditional stock analyst and then a CIO of a small investment management firm here in New York that doesn't exist anymore. But after looking back on 10 years, uh, I decided that I was really not a very good stock or bond picker, and I wasn't passionate about that. I was really more passionate about sort of broad macro themes. And after thinking about it a bit, I came to the conclusion that being a manager of managers in an asset allocator was probably a better use of my skills. And I don't know how I arrived at that, but in retrospect, it was the right decision. And was it difficult to 
go from that decision to end up in a seat at your alma mater? Uh, no, it wasn't. I was actually head of the New York Alumni Association, so I stayed fairly close to my alma mater, and they approached me and said, why don't you come down here and manage our endowment? And I said, you know, don't be silly. I'm a Wall Street guy. I'm a money manager. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was a better use of my skills. And also for family reasons, uh, it would probably be a better lifestyle for me and my family. And I don't think I had all of the insights that I had today with respect to that job, but it turned out to be a great job for me. We were pretty creative in some of the investment categories we did, and I really enjoyed that. I mean, I knew a fair amount about stocks and bonds, but I didn't know anything about private equity and venture capital and all those things. It was a big learning curve for me. And how did that process take hold? Because in 1985, you couldn't read Dave Swenson's book that he wrote 15 years later. So how did you learn where to go, how to structure a portfolio? And did you do it on your own? Did you, who did you tap into? Well, I did some of it on my own, but also back in those days, the CIOs of the major endowments used to talk pretty frequently, and we were very collegial. So I used to talk to Dave Swenson and Scott Malpass and you know all the other uh, CIOs of that era, and people were very generous at you know, sharing their ideas and, and sharing their expertise. I think it was a collaborative effort. I also, I guess, either stupidly or intelligently uh, had the courage to do some things that were a little bit out of the box. Such as? Well, we started investing in distressed security in 1987 or 88 when the first big LBOs blew up. And I can remember actually going to the investment committee at Vanderbilt. Uh, later on, I got full discretion so I could do what I wanted to do in the portfolio. But at that point, I had to go to the committee to get uh, permission to do anything. And I went to them and I said, we should invest some money in this fund that's going to buy bonds of bankrupt companies. And you can imagine the look they gave me, but to their credit, they agreed to do it. And it turned out to be very successful. And that was one of the kind of first major lessons I learned there, which is, you know, the way to really make money in the investment business is to buy unloved assets. And we repeated that strategy over and over again in different asset classes. We did it in real estate. We did it in bonds. We did it in the energy sector. We were in a, a fund that bought sort of mature fields from the major oil companies and packaged them together in a big company and took it public. If I look back on my career, sort of the signature thing we did was to have the courage to do unconventional, ugly sort of unloved assets. And today, people talk about wanting to be contrarian. Everybody talks about wanting to do exactly that. How in the early years did you get the confidence of the board such that the governance structure allowed you to go ahead and pursue those investments? I had to tiptoe my way into that. And so we did this first sort of non-conventional deal, and it worked out very well. I think that that initial fund we did in the bankrupt bond space earned a 40-plus IRR. So that gave me a little bit of credibility. It tends to help, yeah. It does. And as I mentioned, uh, Vanderbilt had been reasonably early investing in venture capital and some, some other non-traditional assets, although the weightings were quite small. So I think there was some proclivity to do that to begin with. And then as we had some successes, you know, it began to build on itself. At some point, I don't remember exactly when, the board gave me within broad bounds the ability to, uh, to make investment decisions and pull the trigger. And so we did more of that along the way. You know, like everybody else, we had a few accidents along the way, but in general, it worked out very well. And how much do you think that that sequencing matters? You got the first one right, right, which gives you credibility. The accidents come later. If, if you think of the landscape today for a lot of CIOs, you have a small pocket of people like David and Scott and Andy Golden that have been in their seats for a long time and probably have the discretion to do what they think and make mistakes. Then you have a large number of universities and foundations that are turning over CIOs. Yes. How does someone who's newer in the seat approach trying to be different? 
Well, first you have to identify opportunities, and then I think you have to articulate the case very clearly and very powerfully. You know, I'm not sure if that's what I did, but in any case, the, uh, the board bought into it, and it worked out very well. I will say that when I decided to retire from Vanderbilt, my successor came along, and I believed he had to sort of build credibility over a while, uh, some period of time. So I'm not sure he had full discretion right away. I think they sort of dialed back to more control on the part of the board. Yeah. So he had to earn his stripes, as I did. Why did you decide to retire? I decided to retire because I'd been at Vanderbilt for 22 years, and I found that every conversation was like deja vu all over again. And I don't mean to be cynical about that at all, but you know, every manager that came in and talked about their proprietary deal flow, I was trying not to roll my eyes. And it's a pretty high-pressure world. Um, you know, every quarter, our return was widely reported and ranked against the 50 largest endowments. And you can imagine that when we didn't have a good quarter, I heard from a lot of people about it. So uh, that was certainly a factor. And then the last thing, I, I did have a, a reasonably good track record while I was there. I decided after 22 years to declare victory. And <laughs> uh, I, I spent a year not doing a lot and then decided to re-engage with this firm that I'd helped create in 1994. I'm there pretty much every day uh, that I'm in town, and I don't have any active client responsibility, but they drag me along as an elder statesman to some client meetings. And I, the thing I really enjoy doing, about once a month, I write a white paper for our clients on some investment topic or another, and I really enjoy that. So one of the things you'd written that I loved, I recently had done an interview with two guys, who, Paul Johnson and Paul Sonkin, who had written a book called Pitch the Perfect Investment. And it was really for managers and what makes a great investment and how does that get presented? And they talked about the different kinds of called edge that a stock picker would have, information advantage, analytical advantage, execution or trading advantage. You layered onto that the different kinds of an edge that an allocator would have. I wonder if you talk a little bit about what you see as what those edges are from an allocator's perspective. I recently wrote a paper for our clients where I talked about edges, and I'm not sure that I've seen any other papers about it. I identified sort of three categories. The first I called structural edges. And what I mean there is, you know, there's certain investors with long time horizons, and that should provide you with some value added. Theory, at least, a lot of investors have shorter time horizons. So all other things being equal, investments that require a long time horizon should be cheaper on average. So I think that creates a potential return. And one one example I use is timber, which we invested in at Vanderbilt. The funds we were in were 15-year funds and you know, very few, and no cash flow along the way. Very few investors can tolerate that sort of structure. In theory, at least, that should make that asset class undervalued. Structural advantage is the first one. I'd also mention liquidity. Some people give up liquidity, and we all talk about an illiquidity premium in private equity and real estate and other things. It hasn't particularly shown itself recently, but you would think it would over time. So that's structural structural advantage. Another one, uh, the second edge is access. And we all know that certain kinds of investors have access to certain kinds of investments that other people don't. It's just that simple. That's the structure of the world, particularly acute in, for example, venture capital, where, you know, if you're not in the right funds, you probably don't want to do venture capital right. investing. Having access is a key uh, attribute. And I think the endowments have been very good over time at gaining access. And I think that's true for a couple of reasons. First, they're long-term investors. They will be there over and over again. And the general partners like that. They have reliable capital. They're knowledgeable people. They have really smart, well-educated staffs who can really ask the right questions. Third, some of them do co-investments, which some private equity firms like. For several reasons, I think the endowment funds have been really good 
investors in. They've taken advantage of their alumni bases in many cases to get access. So access is important. And it's not only true at the asset allocator level, it's obviously true at the underlying fund level. And every private equity manager I ever heard from talked about proprietary deal flow. But but in reality, there are some funds that, that do have proprietary deal flow. Structural advantage was the first one. Access is the second one. And then there's this broad amalgamation of skill. And that in, involves lots of things, information advantages, execution advantages, analytical advantages. I'm a little skeptical about how much of that is really around and whether it's so much competition that you can really identify it and capture it in advance. But there's some there. You know, from an allocator perspective, skill is an interesting question because it does seem like the market for talent or perceived talent of managers is more efficient. So to give a fun, easy example, 15, 20 years ago, many people didn't know who Baupost or Seth Klarman was. He managed money for three families and that was it. Today, that's more of an access question and you have to be a nonprofit pool. You have to be there at the right time. But more people understand that Seth and his team are a top, top investor. And you could ask tough questions like, do they have too much money and all that kind of thing. So where can skill from an allocator's perspective be applied? My experience was that we did not find a lot of skill, and perhaps it was our weakness weakness as opposed to the market, but we did not find much skill that we could capture in the traditional asset classes in the stock, the big cap and stock and bond arena in particular. We found more in the international markets, and maybe that was because those markets were less efficient at the time. Although when you look at the data today, there's still a much higher percentage of international equity managers that outperform the benchmark than U.S. domestic managers. So where we really found the skill was in the private markets. And I think it makes sense. You hopefully capture that illiquidity premium I mentioned. But also, it seems to me that the actual, if there is skill, it actually has the biggest impact in the private markets. Because you think about it, you know, if you buy a stock, you buy the stock, you sell the stock, that's sort of all you can do. In a private equity example, you can change management, you can make acquisitions, you can restructure the capital structure. There are lots of levers that you can pull. And it's true of real estate, et cetera. You know, Dave Swenson has said, and I agree with him, that the ultimate form of capitalism is private equity. And I really agree with that because, you know, you have a long time horizon, you're not beholden to quarterly numbers, and you can do the right thing. And there are lots of levers you can pull. I found, at least with my own experience, that the best skill set that we could identify and capture was really in those non-traditional private kinds of markets. And to make that even more subtle, how do you think about skill of an allocator? It's an interesting question. I think if I really knew the answer, I would have had a better track record than I did. (laughs) I think it's a couple of things. I think it's, you have to have some basic technical knowledge. You know, you have to understand projected returns and correlations and risk and all those kinds of things to structure a portfolio properly. You have to have the courage to do non-conventional things, difficult things, ugly things. So I think there's some of that. And then I think it's just a high degree of intellectual curiosity to and networking to look around and see opportunities that are out there and be willing to take advantage of them. And I don't know how you particularly organize to do that effectively, but somehow we seem to do some of that. So if we take all this together, you have what's been known as the endowment model for a long time, and it has to encompass all of these things. It has to encompass some value added in the asset allocation structure, in the manager selection, in a rebalancing strategy, whatever it is. But over the last 10 years, as we all know, 60-40 has been just fine. Thank you very much. I don't know that many people have earned the 60-40 return, but you could look backwards and say that worked. If you look out the next 10 years, 
How do you think about that battle between a multi-asset class diversified endowment model and just the simple low-cost 60-40? Well, I think a lot of people have declared the death of the endowment model, and I think it's premature to declare its demise. We've been in an extraordinary period, and we all realize that, but people sort of forget about it when they're doing the kind of analytical work you talk about. You've had this nine-year bull market in stocks and bonds, very low volatility. So I don't think we should extrapolate that period going forward. In my little firm that I help operate now, we do a reasonably disciplined job of forecasting returns. And we use inputs from other firms like GMO and research affiliates. We have our own Black Litterman model. So we we crunch a lot of numbers. And where we end up is uh, sort of a 10-year expected return on equity of five-ish, let's call it five and some change, a little more for international stocks. Bonds are sort of three-ish. So I think looking ahead, the simple 60-40 portfolio is going to give you middle single-digit kind of returns. Endowment funds that have uh, four and four and a half percent spending rates, that's just not going to do it. Now, when I throw out numbers like that, people look at me very skeptically today because we're in this roaring bull market, and I certainly am not smart enough to figure out how long that'll go on. But anybody that does a disciplined job of trying to forecast longer-term returns finds it pretty hard to get anywhere close to historical return. If we're right about that, that we're in a, a world of much lower returns, then I think these other kinds of investments that were included in the endowment world will begin to matter again. And we're not going to see, if we have 5% return on stocks, we're not going to have 15% returns on private equity. But historically, you've gotten a three or 400 basis point premium, and maybe we'll get that kind of premium again. And that's real money when you're talking about the level of returns we're at. So I think we're likely to be in a world sometime soon where the diversification helps, where some strategies like hedge funds begin to pay off again. So I'm not ready to abandon the endowment model just yet. Yeah. You know, the fun part about that this conversation is it's timeless in the sense that I feel like if we were sitting here seven or eight, nine years ago, 10, 11, 12 years ago, we probably would have had the same exact conversation. GMO's forecasts for equities 10 years ago were flat to negative. Bond yields were a little bit higher, but not much. How do you work with a client and keep them apace at a strategy that clearly isn't keeping up with the S&P 500 over a long period of time where if that is their benchmark, you're underperforming? Well, I think one of the things you have to do is choose your clients carefully. Uh, The second thing you have to do is educate them. And I should say a word about the firm I'm involved with now. We were a smallish firm, $6.5 billion, a private trust company. About 75% of our clients are individuals and families. About 20 or 25% are institutions, primarily smaller endowments. So when we're working with these folks, we spend a lot of time talking about projected returns. We spend a lot of time talking about risk management. These days, it falls on deaf ears largely, but it perhaps at some point begun, it'll begin to be important again. But it's an uphill battle. I have to tell you, every conversation we have with clients now is why do we have hedge funds? Why do we have private equity? Why do we have all this complexity? You know, why don't we just do stocks and bonds? Until a few months ago, it was, why do we have any international stocks? You know, fortunately, they've outperformed a good bit this year. So that conversation seems to have died down a little bit. Are you getting the Bitcoin question yet? We're getting it. And frankly, I personally don't have a particularly intelligent answer yet. I guess what I would say is that uh, those of us with financial training think about analyzing an investment in a certain way, discounted cash flow basis. And so I've always found it very hard to analyze gold, art, other similar sorts of investments. And I put Bitcoin in the same category. It may well do well. Everything I read tells me the underlying blockchain 
technology is really important, but I have no idea how to value. And I think I, I think. I don't know whether it was Buffett or or Ben Graham or someone said, if you can't really calculate a valuation, it's not investing, it's speculation. And that doesn't say it's bad. It's just you have to understand it for what it is. So I'd love to circle back on the original diversified trust story, because I know you had the opportunity to create it while you were in the seat of Vanderbilt. So at most universities, faculty members are allowed to spend some percentage, typically 20% of their time consulting and doing other things. Typically, administrators are not allowed to do that. For whatever reason, the president of Vanderbilt, when I was there, said, well, if they can do it, we can do it. I was allowed to spend a small percentage of my time doing other things. I had a friend who was a CFO of a hospital and in my part of the world, and the docs would come to him frequently saying, you know, I don't have any place to invest my money where I have confidence. You know, I don't trust these people. So my friend came to me and said, you know, there's got to be an opportunity somehow to create an entity that these people would, would feel excited about investing with. And so uh, we we decided to do it in the form of a trust company because having trust powers allowed us to work with these complex families. So we created, and the initial idea, this was in 1994, uh, the initial idea was to try to make available to a broader universe of investors funds that were similar to endowment funds. Couldn't do all the same things that we did at Vanderbilt, but the idea was to come up with very diversified portfolios, access to non-traditional investments, and to provide that to smaller clients, both individual and institutional. At the time, that was a fairly novel idea. Not so novel today. It's widely practiced today. But uh, that was the initial idea. It's been a, a successful strategy and a successful firm now. We're almost 25 years old. And you know, as I said, we're $6.5 billion, which is not huge, but we really don't market it. We've really done it all organically, word of mouth, sort of uh, friends and family, and it's, it's spread from there. But it's been a, a nice run. Can you touch a little bit on some of the differences in managing an endowment? And then presumably in the trust company, there's some taxable pools of capital. And how do you think about asset allocation differences, manager selection differences? Well, a couple of differences. First is time horizon. You know, endowments, at least in theory, are perpetual funds. So an old friend of mine who was a consultant at Cambridge Associates used to say that the time horizon for an endowment was really three years. And I said, where did you come up with that? He said, well, after one year of bad results, trustees get antsy, but they don't pull the trigger. After two years, they get really antsy and they begin to pull the trigger, but it takes them a year to do it. So I always (laughs) thought that was sort of humorous. But at least in theory, the time horizon of an endowment is perpetual. Obviously, with 75% of our clients being individuals and families, you have more limited time horizons. So that's one thing. The second thing is taxes, obviously. Liquidity is another issue. So there are significant differences. In our manager selection process, uh, particularly on the uh, equity side, one of the things we do is pay attention to tax efficiency. And whether the, uh, you know, a lot of managers, primarily those who, who deal with institutional portfolios, don't think about taxes. So we do try to find managers who will take it into account. If they're thinking about selling something but holding it a short time would make it go long term, we would like it if they would think about those kinds of things. Uh, Another thing that you deal with with individuals and families, obviously, is emotions. Some of that disappears in in the uh, structure of a committee for an endowment. Not all of it, but some of that disappears. But with individuals and families, you're dealing with psychology and emotions and all those sorts of things. What are examples of fun stories that come up that either derail an investment process or educate someone with emotions to stay the course? 
Uh, it's interesting. We we got a couple of calls on the morning after Trump's election saying, get me out. The world's coming to an end. And we said, we don't know what's going to happen, but we do know that knee-jerk sort of reactions are generally a bad idea, so let's sit tight. I actually saw one one of these people just the other day, and he said, thank you so much <laughs> for, for keeping <laughs> me in, the, in okay. the saddle. Uh, of course, we had no insight as to what was going to actually happen. But uh, So you do, occasionally someone will remember that you were right and thank you for it. Not not all that often, but it's but it's nice. You know, some of the more interesting things that we see, we, we work with a number of multi-generation families where we're working with sometimes three generations. And it's interesting to see the differences in approach and psychology and risk tolerance and patience and all those sorts of things across three generations. It, it, it's quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the manager selection process. You've been at this in different iterations and different seats within the same investment organizations for a long time. What are your favorite ways of discerning between two different managers? Well, first of all, I'd say my favorite way not to do it is by looking at track records and long believe that track records have virtually no predictive ability. And I, I think the New York Times a couple of weeks ago had an article about the Morningstar rating saying that they really don't have any efficacy in terms of predicting returns. So I never spent an awful lot of time looking at track records. The things I really spent time on is this an investment uh, approach or philosophy that makes sense to me and I can understand and is well articulated? And that's not always the case, which is interesting. And, and for that reason, I never was a, a fan of black box approaches of any sort, although some of them have been quite successful, but that was just not something we did. So the first thing is, does the basic investment approach make good sense? Second, is it applied on a disciplined basis, a repeatable basis? Because not only do you have to have an edge, but you have to have a repeatable edge. You have to have some sort of process or structure that makes it repeatable. Third, very interested in the people sitting across the table from the people. And I heard an interview recently with Dave Swenson, and he said manager selection is about people, people, people. And I agree with him 100%. And what are the, it's, this is one of those schemas that we all know and believe but there's a big difference between objectively saying, oh, we want good people with high integrity and great character, right. and then the subjective part of that. So what are some of the subjective lenses that you've looked at that you said, this is the kind of person I want to have as a partner versus the kind of person I don't? To me, one of the most important things is is sensing passion on their part. And you know, you can tell people who are in it for the money and just want to gather assets versus people who really, really want to win. And I mean, they live and die by their investment decisions. And it's not because they're going to make another buck necessarily. Although, you know, hopefully they will do that. But it's because they just deep inside have this huge intellectual curiosity and desire to win. And it's not an easy thing to judge, and you do get fooled periodically. But that was the main thing I tried to. Look for was to sit across the table from someone and see real excitement about what they're doing and passion. And it's very subjective and very qualitative. And as I said, you do get it wrong a fair amount of the time, but it's interesting and fun. And if you took an example of an initial due diligence process on a manager, so there's a manager, let's say you haven't known for years, maybe you've heard good things about, maybe someone else referred them, and you're taking these initial meetings and you know that there are only certain days you're meeting them. So maybe they slept really well. Maybe they took some pill that morning. And so their level of excitement and enthusiasm is very high in that moment. How do you get a sense of whether that's who they are as their disposition or it's just how they presented themselves to you in the, those few times that you happen to be face to face with them? 
Well, I think manager selection is a little bit like dating. I don't think you make the decision on the first try. So I, at least uh, where we were able to, we would meet with people over time and not pull the trigger right away. Occasionally, if there was a fund that was in tremendous demand and uh, sort of one time you get in or you don't, you know, we, we would pull the trigger more quickly. But uh, in general, it was a slow get to know your process, talk to them over and over again talk to a lot of people who know them, either existing clients or people in their former firms or whatever, and do as much of that kind of due due diligence as you can. But again, in the end, it's a very subjective, qualitative uh, sort of process. And I have no illusions about how often I'm going to get it right. I'd love to hear your opinion on exiting managers, because when I looked at the decisions that I and my team had made, with somewhat great consistency, you'd tend to exit managers after a week period. And you tend almost never to exit a manager after a very strong period of performance. From my standpoint, the major reasons to change managers are, one, they change their strategy or style. And this is certainly not original to me. Lots of people talk about that. And you can see that. And when you meet, if you meet with them frequently enough and you see changes in the portfolio and you ask them about them and you don't get a satisfactory answer, you know, you, you, you know something is up. A second one to me is personnel turnover, chemistry problems with people. And a third one is motivation. When firms sell, that's not an automatic red light, but it's close to it because people who are hungry, who are excited about being in the game, and if they've recently made a stack of money and uh, now they're going to cruise, that doesn't uh, particularly work for us. So it's the qualitative sort of things again. And you get that wrong sometimes, but uh, I think both in my Vanderbilt life and my current firm's life, we, by the way, in my current firm, we use all outside managers. So it's an open architecture sort of structure. We've been pretty good about not pulling the trigger at the bottom. We've really looked for the qualitative events to change managers. Another thing I didn't mention was asset size when the assets get too large. So we've been pretty good about not making knee-jerk reactions to periods of poor performance. I heard the other day, and I haven't verified this, but I heard that if you look at Warren Buffett's track record, more than a third of three-year periods he underperformed throughout his history. And I'm not sure if that's exactly right, but I think the point is that the best people in this business underperform for significant periods. And if you pull the trigger in those periods, it's probably not going to work. In that first characteristic of someone changing their strategy or the composition of their positions, just that, markets evolve. And on the one hand, it's really important to be invested with a manager who has great discipline. On the other hand, if the thing that they're disciplined about no longer works, you want them to evolve. So how do you decide which shift is quote-unquote style drift that's a bad thing, and which is just an opportunistic evolution of a strategy. Well, I think when you invest with a manager, what you're trying to do is identify the skill, the edge that they have. And so if they vary from that edge or skill, that's when you get worried. That same skill or edge can be applied in other sectors, perhaps, or in other cap sizes. So I'm not too concerned about that. But I am concerned when they do something fundamentally different. And I'll give you a good example. We had at Vanderbilt a fund that was a uh, run by a guy who's really good tech stock picker. And all of a sudden, when we would meet with him, he started always talking about macro themes. Mm-hmm. And I think he was he was an aspiring Paul Tudor Jones or something. And I realized this is not your core strength. And we exited. Yeah. You know, I know in the fundamental manager community, there was a phrase, and this really, you'd see it a lot right after the financial crisis, where people said they had to be macro aware. And a friend of mine once referred to it as crack row. 
<laughs> Once you go there, it's hard to go back and get addicted to just sort of making that type of call. Well, and regardless of what you think, for example, of, of the macro managers, you know, most of them have not gotten it right for a number of years now. So I'm not entirely convinced that that provides a lot of value added. Yes, you need to be aware of what's going on in the world. But uh, when you look at the big macro hedge funds uh, in the last eight or nine years, their uh, track records are not overwhelming, to say the least. I want to talk a little bit about what's different today. So if you were the newly anointed CIO at, well, it won't be Vanderbilt. Andrews is doing a nice job there. But if you were the newly CIO, appointed CIO at a five or $6 billion pool of capital, would you approach it the same way that you have or would you do it differently and why? I guess I'm glad I'm not because I think it's a particularly difficult time. I think I, it's not often that you're happy about getting older, but I, I'm sort of happy that that part of my career is over. I think it's an extraordinarily difficult time because if you buy my premise that returns are not going to be particularly exciting in the traditional asset classes, then you begin to look farther afield. But the problem is in most of those other asset classes, there have been tremendous capital inflows. So, you know, there was reasonable questions as to whether returns on private equity and real estate and some of these other strategies are going to be as attractive as they have been. If you're going to truly find value-added, uncorrelated, we call them idiosyncratic return streams, I think you've got to look pretty far afield. And I'm not sure where they are. Personally, when I look around the world, I don't see any cheap assets today with maybe the exception of volatility. And I don't have any sense or any skill at figuring out when volatility might pick up, but that's the only asset class I can find today, perhaps with the exception of MLPs. But you know, most asset classes do not look cheap. And so if I'm an endowment fund and uh, to sustain the spending rate, got to earn 7 8%, 6 7 8% kind of return, I think that's going to be a pretty significant challenge you know, looking ahead. So if I were in the CIO seat, I would be paying attention to costs. I would be using low-cost vehicles in uh, in the categories where I don't think it's easy to add value. And I would really be digging around for interesting, uncorrelated kinds of strategies. And my firm, we do a little bit of that, although we're probably not big enough to do some of the things that we could have at Vanderbilt. But we've looked at things like uh, music rights, agricultural land, uh, litigation finance, catastrophic reinsurance bonds. We're looking at all sorts of niche kinds of investments. But the problem is if you're a big endowment, a lot of these categories probably can't take a lot of capital. Yeah. So, so I think it's an uphill battle these days. And some of this reminds me of timber because you know I remember when the endowments, it was really Harvard first, probably Harvard and Vanderbilt, but that started adopting timber way back when. Right. But then when the other endowments started adding it to their asset allocation structures, the pricing went up. Absolutely. And today, when you talk about these more esoteric investments, it's the same list. It's cat bonds and litigation finance and increasingly music royalties. And so let's say that some of these return streams people are looking for, call it high single digit to low double digit net returns. Right. Have these return streams delivered in these different areas? I think with a lot of these categories, it's really too early to tell. I mean, you know, there's not enough institutional kinds of history. There have been investors that have done these sorts of things on a one-off sort of basis. But, you know, in terms of institutional quality funds, I don't know that we really know just yet. That goes back to the the comment I made early on that uh, you have to have the courage to do some things without the definitive proof or the track record to really convince you that this is going to work, but you've got to take a shot at some of it. I don't think we know. And I think the returns will be lower than they might have been before. But if you're earning three on bonds and five on stocks, if you earn seven or eight, that may not be the end of the world. Right. So we have 
all of these confounding factors, right? In the public markets, we have return compression. And really, the dispersion of returns of active managers is way down. In the esoteric other investment opportunities, you have more and more people looking. And if more capital comes in, that same asset stream or that cash flow stream gets devalued. So then you're left with the question of, okay, these are still really long-term pools of capital. We just happen to be sitting at a moment in time where forward-looking returns based on today's prices aren't that interesting. And the one thing that we haven't talked about that most people don't talk about is cash. Right. Why is it that endowments, foundations, pension funds aren't able to say, you know, today's return opportunities don't look so good. Sometime tomorrow, I don't know if that's tomorrow or next week or three years from now, they will look better, but we're going to be around for a long time. Let's just move a chunk of our capital to cash. I think it's a really interesting question, and, and I know why people don't do it. I mean, if you've got to earn 5 or 6% to sustain your spending rate and you're earning three-quarters of a percent on cash, it's a very, very difficult decision to make. But you could certainly argue that saving dry powder for another day is a really sensible thing. But, it's boy, it's a, it's a tough one to do. I don't have a good answer as to how to, to convince people to think about that. You know, personally, I in my own little account, have a, have a lot of cash. And uh, not that I have any great ability to forecast the world, but my view is I'm more concerned with keeping what I have as opposed to making a bunch. So I'm perfectly willing to sacrifice the opportunity cost of not earning what I could have for sleeping well at night. And But that's me, and I'm in a different phase in my life than some other people might be. Yeah. But you know, it's a really, really interesting question. And I wish I had a good answer, but I don't. <laughs> you know, the other big challenge is... In the liquid markets we talked about, stocks and bonds, we know we can access that with low cost. There's a gentleman in Omaha that says, just buy the S&P 500, everything will be fine. But the other things that give you a chance to earn higher returns than what we're projecting for stocks and bonds cost a lot more. How do you think about the balance of accessing something that's different that you, you know, is 7% enough when you know you're paying the fees, you don't know for sure what you're going to get on the other side? I think it goes back to the discussion we had before about an edge. I mean, you've got to be convinced that there's a pervasive, powerful, repeatable edge to be willing to pay those fees. I also think that fees will continue to come down in, in some of the non-traditional categories. But nevertheless, I think you, you you really have to be convinced that there's enduring value added there. And you ought to be skeptical about it. You ought to be cynical about it. Uh, one thing I would say is, uh, at least from the valuation work that we do, we think the international stocks are a good bit more attractive than U.S stock. So you can obviously do that on a relatively low cost basis as well. Maybe that's one way to tilt a portfolio that gives you a little more bang uh, without getting into a high fee proposition. And is there anything that you're seeing around the world that you are particularly excited about either that you have in your portfolios and want other people to buy into so that it'll go up or that you're sort of curious and doing research on that you think might be a really interesting opportunity? I don't think we've found the category yet, but we're investigating lots of them. Some of the ones I mentioned before and some other ones. So, no, we haven't found the holy grail yet. And one of the problems is that even if you do find something that's very interesting, you know, is it investable in the sense of having the right kind of vehicle at the right cost and all those sorts of issues? So, no. As I said before, (laughs) I don't see any overwhelmingly cheap assets today other than volatility. And I I think volatility is cheap, but I have no sense whatsoever as to when it 
it may turn. And if you look at uh, historical volatility, it can stay low for long periods of time. We might be in a low volatility regime for a long period. And obviously, you can invest in volatility through uh, ETFs, but they're not the greatest vehicles in the world because of the rolling of the futures contracts. If volatility stays constant, the price of the ETFs goes down. They're not wonderful vehicles, but nevertheless, you can do it. But that's the only cheap, cheap asset I see today. What do you think the asset management industry looks like 10 or 20 years from now? That's a really interesting question. And I actually was just in the last couple of days have been at a mass mutual board meeting and we spent a lot of time talking about that and had some presentations from people outside in, in the consulting industry. I think it bifurcates, I think, or maybe what's what's the word for three? three uh, Trifurcate? Trifurcates, <laughs> perhaps. I think you have big time scale players, particularly in the low cost uh, beta sorts of products. I think you have some a small number of active boutiques that uh, you know do what they do very well and then i think you have some sort of high touch uh, rolls royce bespoke kinds of companies like i hope ours will be that deals with families and what i would say about a firm like mine is that you know we of course try to do a good job on the investment front but where we really add value particularly with the, the individuals and families, is on the, the broad wealth management area. And, and a lot of people give lip service to wealth management, but if you really do a good job of it, you become a trusted advisor. It's good business. It's psychically rewarding business. We work a lot with these families in terms of helping them understand their objectives, estate planning, tax planning, cash management, psychology, education, refereeing family disputes. You know, we help families sell businesses, we help them sell real estate, buy their airplane, whatever it is. I think that's a really valuable and underrated component of that wealth management business. You know, I think in the world, you have the mega players at very low cost with margins very narrow. You have a few, a lot lower number than there are today, a sort of active boutiques who add value. And then you have some little niche players. That just sounds like it's just getting harder and harder. Well, it is. Well, you know, fee compression is a reality in the business. Margin pressure is a reality in the business. Distribution difficulties are really significant. And if you look at a lot of the wealth advisors out there, they're now becoming asset allocators and manager selectors and all those sorts of things. It's an uber competitive world. And is this so is this all the manager selection business? Is it becoming commoditized? You know, I think so. And you look at the, the flows into funds these days, and you, know, you look at the flows into uh, passive versus active funds, it's pretty daunting. It's pretty scary if you're in the active management business. I still think there are a small number of people who can add value and will add value. But, you know, can you identify them in advance? Can you get access to them? So there are all those difficult sorts of questions. So what happens if you're an aspiring money manager and you're earlier in your career, you're in your early, mid-30s, have had 10 years of great training? What do you do? I think you have to really look in the mirror and decide whether you have skill, you have an edge, and what it is. And then if you can identify it and have some confidence in it, you go and do that, however you do that. Uh, Otherwise, you've got to rethink your career. And it's not to say it's the end of the world. And that was exactly the decision I made. I, you know, look back on 10 years of picking stocks and bonds and said, you know, Bill, you're really not very good at this. Uh, (laughs) But you're not stupid. You have some expertise in other areas. So how can you take advantage of that? So I think that's the decision everybody has to make. There's going to be a lot of change for sure. 
Interesting world. Uh, you know, on the other hand, it is a great business. You look at the asset management business, even with the fee compression, it's still a very high margin business. So it's still a, a wonderful business. And you look globally at the pools of assets, they're huge. And you think about the middle class coming along in the emerging markets and in China, you think about the sovereign wealth pool, and there are lots, lots of money around the world. So there are opportunities, but I think you clearly are going to have to demonstrate either very low cost, efficient beta or sustainable alpha of some sort and not easy to do. What are you most proud of in your career? It's interesting. I'd say the thing that gives me the most pleasure is once in a while, I, I've been retired from Vanderbilt for 10 years, and once in a while I will run into someone who will say, I'm the professor of so-and-so. The reason I have my chaired professorship is because of the return you earned on the endowment fund. And someone set up, let's say someone years ago set up an endowment fund to support a chair, but because of a great run of returns that we had, it's now two chairs or three chairs in some cases. That's really rewarding when you get those kinds of psychic on the bank. I can look back at my track record versus benchmarks and how we rank versus other endowments. All that's fine. But the really nice ones are uh, when you meet a student who had a scholarship or you meet a professor and those sorts of things. All right, Bill, I want to, talk to cl- turn to a couple of fun closing questions. What was your favorite sports moment, either as a fan or a participant or both? As a participant, I have an interesting hobby. I'm a fairly active ballroom dancer and compete. In 2015, I was the top student in the country, top male amateur ballroom wow. dancer in the country. Uh, winning that was a really big thing. And is that, do you travel for those competitions? We, that year, we did 13 competitions all around the U.S., and uh, in each one, we did more than 300 dances. So we did about 4,000 competitive dances that Holy year. Holy cow. So uh, th- that was a really exciting moment for me and something I worked very hard to do. And, and you got a nice big trophy, I hope. Yes, I spent a lot of money <laughs> to get a nice big trophy. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the nice thing about that particular hobby is the partnership aspect of working so closely with someone. Yeah, that's terrific. Now, were you a dancer all along or was that a... No, later? my wife had started several years before I did and she tried to get me to do it and I really wasn't interested. And I finally said, okay, I'll go take 10 lessons so I can dance with you at a wedding. And I found that I loved it as well. So. Oh, fantastic. It's been it's been a nice run. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you through your life? Oh, that's a great question. It's interesting. Uh, I don't remember her name, but there's a woman who I think is at Yale who wrote a book about tiger moms. Mm-hmm. And later on, she wrote another book about success in life. And one of the things she said was one of the clues to successful living is impulse control. And, you know, my parents taught me to be relatively disciplined and focused, have a sense of direction and goals. And the more I go through life, the more I believe that's really important. I don't always, of course, always achieve them. And I, and I drift a bit here and there. But having a sense of purpose is important. And I particularly found that when I retired, quote, unquote, retired, although I flunked retirement and ended up going back to work fairly quickly. But it's very interesting when you wake up one day and you say, holy smokes, I don't have to go to work today. What am I going to do with myself? And you see some people that end up going to the country club and playing golf and spending the afternoon in the bar. And I don't think that's a a good prescription for longevity. So I think having some purpose, and it doesn't have to be work. It can be whatever it is. But having some purpose and goals and objectives is really important. What information do you read that you get a lot out of that you think other people might not know about? 
terms of the financial world, I think the, I love The Economist, and it's a big, thick uh, magazine. It takes a lot of effort to get through it, but I find that the global perspective there is probably the most valuable single thing I read. You know, I read the other things that everybody else reads too, you know, Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg and all those things, but I find The Economist to be not only valuable in terms of the financial world, but just the global perspective on politics and life in general. I find that to be particularly interesting. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I guess for many years, I would have classified myself as rather impatient. And I think the, the best thing I've learned over time is to be more patient and you know, maintain a degree of uh, calm and serenity and to not get too agitated about things. And it takes a long time to learn that. And I'm not sure I haven't totally learned it just yet, but I, maintaining a sort of equilibrium, I think, is the most important thing I've learned. And I think it's particularly helpful in the investment world because look back on my career, I tried never to gloat about the successes and never get too depressed about the failures. And I think that helped a lot along the way. Yeah, not easy to do, though. No, no. no, no. (laughs) All right, last one. You are in your waning days. You've now failed retirement three times, but you're, you're trying the third time to make it work. Sitting back in a rocking chair, thinking about your life, what advice would you give yourself today? I guess my objective in life, and I've had this objective for many, many years, and I, and I will never get there, but my objective has been to be a Renaissance man. And I don't say that arrogantly. What I mean by that is I've always wanted to have lots of interests. I wanted to do lots of things. I wanted to try lots of things, go lots of places. And I would give that advice to anybody. I think balance is the key to, to life, and really having curiosity about everything in the world is the key to success. And I think it's the key to longevity, and it's the key to keeping a keen mind and all those sorts of things. You know, I would say go for it and try everything you can and go every place you can, and that will be very rewarding. Terrific. Bill, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time. 